Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Here's a question. Nuclear power still plays a big role in our energy mix, and it's producing power without sending carbon into the atmosphere. So should it be considered renewable? It is not considered, in our minds, renewable. It's not. That's the view of many lawmakers and citizens who view the nuclear power plants in their backyards warily, even as they count on them to keep the lights on. One reason for worry? Well, since there's been no federal solution, the spent fuel from these plants is being stored here indefinitely. But there's another view of nuclear from people whose jobs rely on these plants about what life will look like when they close. We're on our way to a new future. We don't have the anger and frustration that we had in the very beginning. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We're going to talk about nuclear's role in our region and about how regional issues are playing out in state capitals. We'll also dig into the realities of race in places that are mostly white. You hear this phrase, oh, you know, Maine is so white. We can never attract people who are non-white because it's so white here. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start this week's show by taking you inside some of New England's capitals to see how governors and lawmakers are addressing issues with interstate impact. Let's start with our roads, where, at least in four New England states, you're pretty familiar with paying tolls. In some states, that still means old-fashioned toll booths where you stop and hand someone money. In others, like Massachusetts, new overhead gantries record when you go through with an easy pass, or they send you a ticket in the mail if you don't have one. The problem is a lot of people just aren't paying. Massachusetts reported that out-of-state drivers owe nearly $27 million in unpaid tolls to the Commonwealth. The biggest scofflaw state? Well, it's tiny Connecticut, directly to the south. One reason why Connecticut drivers might not already have an easy pass or might just ignore a letter from the Mass DOT, well, there's no agreement between Massachusetts and Connecticut that would hold drivers responsible if they don't pay their tolls in neighboring states. The other big reason is that residents of Connecticut, well, haven't had to pay tolls on their own state roads for more than three decades. But that might be changing. New Governor Ned Lamont reintroduced the idea of tolling in his budget address, saying toll money could be used to rebuild highways and bridges suffering from decades of neglect. And that could be a lot of toll money, as most traffic from the south that goes into New England goes straight through the nutmeg state. But as Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports, tolls have a long history as a political third rail. It was 1983. Toll booths in Connecticut had already experienced decades of problems like accidents and traffic jams, and then a truck slammed into a car waiting at the Stratford Toll Plaza on Interstate 95. Here's a police officer speaking to WTNH at the time. Investigation shows that the truck, for some reason, just went through the uh, toll lane and struck uh, two or three vehicles, and there was an explosion, and we have uh, six people incinerated right, right now. The accident ended up killing seven people. But for years prior, tolls had problems. Commuters in southwest Connecticut complained they bore most of the fees. News reports at the time documented foggy days and fender benders at toll plazas, and there were other fatal accidents, too. All that led state leaders to reverse course and eliminate tolls. And this April, it'll be 30 years since the last bit of change dropped into a Connecticut toll booth. But getting rid of the booths also got rid of lots of money. 
So Governor Ned Lamont floated a plan to bring back tolls, but only for trucks. This way, he said, the state could capture revenue from the out-of-state commercial vehicles that roll back and forth across Connecticut without putting a burden on local commuters in their cars. It was a key piece of his winning campaign last year. I have been very specific. I would put tolls on the big tractor trailers coming in and out of this state. He cited neighboring Rhode Island, which started tolling trucks in June at two spots on Interstate 95. This spring, it plans to start expanding to 10 more locations, tolling large tractor trailers. We don't need to toll cars. Charles St. Martin is a spokesperson for the Rhode Island Department of Transportation. He says the state only tolls trucks to help balance the books on its 10-year plan to fix bridges, which are some of the worst in the nation. We were not, you know, being able to catch up in terms of replacing our structurally deficient bridges faster than new ones became deficient. We needed a little more revenue to make that happen. So far, the program has exceeded expectations, pulling in about $600,000 per month. But Rich Pianka, a lawyer with the American Trucking Associations, says the whole arrangement is unconstitutional. The ATA is part of a federal lawsuit saying Rhode Island's tolls give breaks to in-state truckers while signaling out the large tractor trailers typically engaged in multi-state commerce. And we want to make sure uh, to establish that other states don't get the same idea and, and try to use uh, you know, interstate commerce and interstate trucking as a piggy bank for their funding issues. Since taking office, Lamont has changed his tune on just taxing trucks, floating a plan that could also include cars but with a caveat. I would only consider this option if we maximize the discount for Connecticut Easy Pass users and offer a frequent driver discount for those who require frequent use of our major roadways. Lamont says tolls could eventually bring in $800 million each year. And toll booths, the ones that caused all those accidents, well, they'd be gone. Replaced with dozens of overhead Easy Pass gantries on Interstates 84, 91, 95, and Route 15. Lamont wants it all rolling by 2025 but lawmakers need to approve it. At a rest stop on I-95 in Fairfield, reactions to tolls are mixed. Some support the idea if the money is used to fix roads. One man says he just uses his GPS to avoid tolls. Wilton resident Julie Higgins says she's not necessarily opposed to tolls, but thinks Connecticut drivers are already pretty squeezed. Connecticut's become a very unappealing place to live, and one of the reasons is taxes. I realize we're in a pickle now, we have to do something. I guess the appeal of tolls is that out-of-staters get hit with it too, so the burden isn't fully borne by the people of Connecticut. Higgins says that makes tolls slightly more appealing, but still. I'm about to leave Connecticut, moving to another state. She says her kids are older. She's bought land and is headed to New Jersey, which she jokes is another high-tax state, which also has tolls, which means soon Higgins will drive south, paying tolls on the road to the next chapter of her life. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. By the way, the other state in our region with no tolling, Vermont. But that's really no surprise. They haven't even had roadside billboards for 50 years. What Vermont lawmakers are grappling with this year is a different interstate issue, though, the health of large bodies of water. Vermont is bordered on one side by the long Connecticut River and on the other by massive Lake Champlain. Both need attention to address pollution concerns. But where's the money going to come from to clean them up? Here to talk with us is Peter Hirschfeld, who covers the Capitol at Vermont Public Radio. Peter, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, John. In Governor Phil Scott's budget, he's allocated money for phosphorus cleanup in Lake Champlain. What's the plan for that? 
Well, John, uh, Governor Phil Scott is one of those New England Republicans who leans left on social issues but really does reveal his conservative worldview when it comes to fiscal matters. And he said, yes, we need to appropriate significantly more money for water quality in Vermont than we are right now. But he thinks that residents here are really taxed out. So what he's done is come up with a plan that basically reallocates existing state revenues to pay for this water cleanup effort. Specifically, Phil Scott wants to take almost all of the estate tax revenues in Vermont um, and also a decent chunk of property transfer tax revenues and then devote those to water improvement projects. Instead, Phil Scott says underlying economic growth in the state is reasonably strong and that that growth will yield some organic growth in state revenues. And he says that's going to allow the state to repurpose these existing state revenues in ways that don't cause undue harm to other government programs and services. And why exactly did he put this on the table? What prompted him to action after this time? So I I think there are three words that are more important than any others, and that is Environmental Protection Agency. About eight years ago, federal regulators at EPA took a really close look at what Vermont was doing to remediate pollution in the lake, and they decided that Vermont was not going about that task nearly aggressively enough. So the federal government issued an ultimatum, either come up with a suitable plan for reducing the amount of pollution going into the lake or we're going to exercise our federal authority in ways that require you to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in old wastewater treatment facilities. Now, Vermont desperately wants to avoid that outcome, and in order to do so, it needs to comply with this federal cleanup order. And that's why you're seeing the majority of the state's water cleanup resources being directed at the state's largest lake. Aha. So when the EPA gets involved, all of a sudden people want to come together and figure out a way to pay for the cleanup to get the cleanup done. But what about the other bodies of water? I mentioned the Connecticut River. There's rivers, streams, and lakes all throughout your state. What happens to them? Well, you know, that's one big concern. And one of the concerns is that what goes on with them is far less, as of now at least, when you compare to what's happening on Lake Champlain. For all the reasons I outlined, Lake Champlain and to a lesser degree Lake Memphremagog, which is also under a federal cleanup order, are the central focus of water quality regulators in Vermont. And a lot of folks feel that the Connecticut River Basin is getting short shrift as a result. And it isn't just the Connecticut. Vermont has scores of other waterways aside from Lake Champlain that have been deemed impaired. And impaired, I should mention, is a regulatory term of art that signifies the damaged water ecosystem. At the Vermont Agency of Natural Resources, the focus right now, for good reasons, is on reducing the amount of phosphorus that's going into impaired waterways. But phosphorus is not the only thing that's ailing the water right now. In the Connecticut River, for example, environmentalists are concerned about sediment deposits. They're concerned about high water temperatures, low flow levels. And these adverse conditions are the result of everything from old dams to inadequate vegetative buffers along stream banks. The environmental community is really thrilled. I want to to make very clear about all the work that's going to be done to clean up Lake Champlain. But there are some real concerns about out there that the Connecticut River and other waterways are sort of getting left out of this process. Peter Hirschfeld is the Capitol Bureau reporter for Vermont Public Radio. Peter, as always, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, John. Our last state capital stop is in Augusta, Maine, where new Governor Janet Mills and two environmental groups are signing on to Central Maine Power's bid to build a controversial new transmission line through western Maine's forests. 
That transmission line is being built to get energy from Quebec's rich hydropower system down to the hungry consumers in Massachusetts. But as Maine Public's Fred Bever reports, the deal's drawing fire from other environmental groups, grassroots opponents, and some renewable energy developers in Maine. The New England Clean Energy Connect, as it's called, would bring electricity from Canada's vast dam system through Maine to serve Massachusetts customers, enough electricity to power a million homes. Governor Janet Mills has now formally signed on to an agreement among supporters that includes a variety of incentives that CMP and Hydro-Quebec are offering. That stipulation importantly includes substantial benefits to the Maine economy, substantial benefits to Maine ratepayers, and substantial benefits in our efforts to combat climate change across this state and across the region. Those include a $140 million subsidy for residential and business electricity bills doled out over 40 years. There's another $50 million specifically geared to helping low-income Mainers reduce energy costs. $10 million would go to deployed broadband in towns that would host the transmission line. And tens of millions would be spent over time to help Mainers convert their homes from high-polluting oil furnaces to low-polluting electric heat pumps to buy electric vehicles, and to install EV charging stations around the state. At a press conference at Portland's Jetport, Mills held up a gray one-pound block of carbon to demonstrate how much carbon dioxide she believes New England would stop emitting each year thanks to the influx of low-polluting Canadian hydropower. Nearly 80 million of these one-pound cubes of carbon no longer emitted into our atmosphere. To me, that's significant. Despite such claims about the benefits of drawing in Canadian hydropower, a similar project proposed in New Hampshire was strongly opposed by environmental groups. But one of those former foes, the Conservation Law Foundation, says it now believes that Massachusetts' purchase of the Hydro-Quebec electricity will significantly help to move the region towards a zero-emissions future. Sean Mahoney directs CLF's main chapter. We know that Hydro-Quebec has publicly filed for the necessary approvals in Quebec to increase the capacity of their existing facilities by up to 750 megawatts of power. That means replacing old turbines, adding additional turbines, and creating additional efficiencies at their existing facilities. And CMP says it will take action to ensure that the big pulse of hydropower doesn't make it harder for Maine-based renewable energy to get onto the regional grid Even with those perks, Mahoney acknowledges that there will be trade-offs. We're going to be faced with a host of difficult decisions over the next two or three decades as we try and get our arms around the impending disaster of, of climate change. But for opponents, the transmission project itself remains the clear and present danger. The settlement agreement is just window dressing. It does nothing to address the fundamental problems with this project. Nick Bennett is staff scientist at the Natural Resources Council of Maine. He says the project would bisect and disturb wildlife habitat through a roughly 50-mile stretch of Maine's western forest. And while CMP and Hydro-Quebec will profit, Bennett says, there is no proof in the record that globally carbon dioxide emissions will be reduced. Instead, he and many opponents argue Hydro-Quebec could simply reroute to Massachusetts electricity that it's now selling to other markets and therefore it will not have a significant climate benefit. And so Maine is going to take a big hit to the western 
part of the state and its environments essentially for nothing. In addition to NRCM, the Transmission Project is opposed by the Appalachian Mountain Club and Trout Unlimited, and it's run up against a robust grassroots network of residents and businesses along the proposed corridor and beyond. They are joined by renewable power and fossil fuel generators, which believe the project will hurt their position in the marketplace. For CMP, which has struggled to retain public trust in recent years, adding CLF and another environmental group, the Acadia Center, to the list of project supporters is an important milestone. The Office of Public Advocate, the Governor's Office, from the Industrial Energy Consumers Groups, they all speak for different and important constituencies in Maine, and they're making a good, solid, informed decision to support the project. I think that's going to give a lot of people comfort. There are hurdles ahead. Even if utility and environmental regulators here and in Massachusetts approve the project, some Maine lawmakers are teeing up legislation that could stall or even kill the project. The governor's newly vocal support, though, could signal a tough road for those efforts. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. Coming up, we'll discuss race in Maine and Martha's Vineyard. But first, we'll talk about the role nuclear energy plays in our region. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. A recent article from the Boston Globe caught our eye. In it, reporter Joshua Miller reports on the casks of nuclear waste that are sitting at nuclear power stations in our region, plants that were closed decades ago. Scientists, plant operators, and lawmakers insist they're safe, but how much are taxpayers shelling out to keep this waste on site? Just this week, owners of the decommissioned plants in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Maine were awarded more than $103 million by a federal judge to pay for the federal government's failure to take this waste off their hands. We called up Josh Miller to find out more. Josh, welcome to Next. It's great to be with you, John. Why don't you explain what's being stored at these sites and how it's being stored? So uh, first, a little bit of background. Uh, nuclear power reactors are powered by uranium pellets and metal rods, and they heat up as atoms split apart. So that heat creates steam, and the steam powers turbines, which make electricity. But these rods, which are sort of the essence of the reactors, they grow less efficient over time. And after about five years, they have to be replaced. So they put the new ones in, and then the old ones are extremely radioactive and phenomenally hot and they get put in deep pools of water to cool down and those rods stay hot it's too hot to really take out of the water for about five years but they stay radioactive for thousands tens of thousands millions of years a second piece of background is since the 1950s the federal government has been studying how to permanently dispose of this super radioactive nuclear waste from civilian power reactors and the government found that burying the waste deep underground is the best option but for decades when the government started nosing around whether it was kentucky or louisiana or california or nevada to look for a place to bury it the public around there said, no, no thanks. We don't want a national nuclear waste dump in our backyard. It was sort of the ultimate NIMBY issue. The third piece of important background to answer your question is that in the early 1980s, faced with these pools at nuclear power plants all across the country, 
uh, sort of filling up with these old power rods, Congress made this pledge. They said, you know what? This is going to be a federal issue. We're going to have the Department of Energy haul away all this old waste starting in 1998. And in return, we're going to take a fee from consumers' electricity bills. And that will pay for it. But starting in 1998, we're going to start taking away this waste. And that was the promise the federal government made in uh, the early 1980s. And it was supposed to jumpstart the scientific process to look all across the country, find a good place to bury the waste. And it ended up with just Nevada, which was politically weak at the time. The law was changed, so it said, we're just going to bury all this waste from across the country in Nevada at a place called Yucca Mountain. So fast forward a few decades, Yucca Mountain researched, they drilled a lot of holes in the ground, didn't end up working out because Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, who was just a new senator at the time and became the most powerful Senate leader, nixed it with the Obama administration. And that brings us to those three plants you just talked about, Yankee Row, Connecticut Yankee, and Maine Yankee in, in Wiscasset, Haddam, and Row, Massachusetts. They've been left to hold on to the nuclear waste. It got taken out of pools about a decade or two decades ago and put into these large concrete casks where it just sits there. And the reason it's expensive is because these companies, the three Yankees and every other nuclear power plant since 1998 has gone to court and said, hey, federal government, we gave you all of this ratepayer money to take away the waste starting in 1998 and you didn't. So you should be paying for the storage. You're in breach of contract. And federal courts have agreed. What's extraordinary is the longer this goes on and continues to go on, the more it costs. Those three New England plants alone have cost taxpayers about $600 million to pay for storage. Across the country, the the figure that taxpayers have paid out for the storage of these waste at the plants, $7 billion with a B. So that's, that's a long way of saying it's a really expensive problem. You say taxpayers are paying for it. How specifically are taxpayers paying for this? Is it about electric rates? Is it about taxes? Explain how you and I are paying for this radioactive storage. So this is a this is sort of the terrible twist of it. As as people who use electricity and pay taxes, we've gotten knocked on both ends. On the front end, until a few years ago, everyone who lived in New England and was using power that included from nuclear plants was paying an additional fee, the nuclear waste fee, um, that went to this big fund that was meant to take pay for taking all the waste away to Yucca Mountain or somewhere uh, permanently. It, that money is still sitting in a fund. It's about $40 billion. But the federal courts have ruled that money can't be spent to reimburse these plants like the the three that we've talked about. So it ends up that when the plants sue, and it's again, the total is about $7 billion so far, uh, that ends up coming from a different pot of money, just uh, the general treasury fund called the judgment fund, and it gets paid out. So we've actually, as people who use electricity and pay taxes, we've paid on both ends for this to, for the nuclear waste to remain exactly where it started. And, And there's the costs involved too in what happens at these sites. As Nuclear power plants are decommissioned. One thing that we've seen certainly is the the jobs go away from those locations where people have been working to make nuclear power over time. But as long as this waste is stored on site, I can't imagine... Josh, that it helps the property values any in these towns. <laughs> yeah, no, no uh, green fielding, no making a beautiful park where the uh, the power plant once was. Uh, the, the federal regulations and state regulations in Massachusetts require that it essentially be remediated to the the way it was before. So, for example, in Rowe, Massachusetts, out in Western Mass, they drilled a bunch of wells to make sure there was no more radioactivity on the site in the water than there was in any site nearby that wasn't nearby. They checked the soil, they removed everything. It's essentially made to be so that you can do something else on it. But as long as those 
huge casks of nuclear waste, 13 feet high or 18 feet high, depending on how they do that, are sitting there. No, you can't build anything on it. And the economic utility of it is essentially zero. So just this week, federal judges awarded these three plants over $100 million to cover operating costs. Essentially, this is part of this ongoing legal proceeding, trying to recoup the costs that they thought the federal government was going to take off their hands. Totally. And what's particularly fascinating and, and sort of terrible about these three companies is that they, none of them would be in business were it not for having to safeguard this nuclear waste. All of them, a federal court has decided, would be out of business. They would have dismantled the sort of company structure that's existed in Massachusetts case since the 1950s and would have just sort of disappeared as a corporate entity. But, but they have to remain in business purely as a result of the government not picking up the waste as promised. Joshua Miller has been covering this issue of nuclear waste for the Boston Globe. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, John. I appreciate being on you. The casks of spent fuel are here, and they will be for a while. And as we've heard, they're very expensive to maintain. But are they safe? The um, physical and chemical form of these waste is very, very stable. It is contained within uh, casks, and I keep referring to as dry casks, which are extremely robust. They can last for decades with minimal maintenance. So I think it's it's a safe waste form. It's very unfortunate we have failed as a nation to sort of find, so far at least, to find a, uh, a site for a centralized repository where all these dry casks could go. But uh, it certainly wouldn't keep me awake up at night to know that in my town I have these dry casks. That's Jacopo Bongiorno. He's a professor and the associate department head at MIT's Nuclear Science and Engineering Department. We called him up to better understand the current state of nuclear in our energy mix, with Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant operating in New Hampshire and Millstone Nuclear Power Plant still operating in Connecticut, and what the future will look like with Vermont Yankee recently closed and Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Massachusetts slated to shut down later this year. Jacopo Bongiorno, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. Maybe you can start by breaking down the role that nuclear energy currently plays in New England's overall energy makeup. Well, let me start by zooming out and actually telling you what the role of nuclear is for the U.S. as a whole. It currently provides about 20% of our electricity mix and over 50% of our zero-carbon or low-carbon electricity. So the role of nuclear is already big. In the New England region, is similar to the national situation. The nuclear power plants that you mentioned in your brief introduction are generally struggling in the U.S. because of competitive pressure from alternative energy sources, in particular natural gas, which is, which is very cheap. But based on analysis that we did at MIT as part of a study that lasted about two and a half years on the present and future prospects of nuclear energy, we find that continuing the operation of nuclear power plants is actually the lowest cost approach to avoiding an, in, an increase in, in emissions. So, so what you're saying is that even if nuclear power isn't considered a quote-unquote renewable energy source like wind or solar would be, that when a nuclear plant goes away, a state's overall emissions will then go up. That's absolutely correct. And while it is not defined as renewable, it is a zero car, essentially a zero-carbon energy source. And what is perhaps even more important, it's a dispatchable energy source. In other words, you can generate electricity when you need it. Uh, when you're trying to fill the gaps created by the intermittency or variability, if you wish, of uh, solar and wind. So bottom line, we think that what's important is to have a generation mix of both variable solar and wind as well as dispatchable or firm or controllable energy sources such as nuclear that drive down the emissions in the power sector. 
In Vernon, Vermont, where Vermont Yankee has produced power for so many years, there's a question of what will happen to that community after the power plant is completely shut down and decommissioned. Howard Weiss-Tisman from VPR spoke with former Vernon State Representative Patty O'Donnell. You know, when you wake up one day and your whole world has changed, it's an adjustment. It takes a little while to try to figure out what direction you're going to go. And and we're on our way to a new future. We don't have the anger and frustration that we had in the very beginning. And we've done it. We're surviving. So, I, you know, I think that's, that, that's a big... Um, it's a big thing for the town of Vernon, and I'm very proud of the people in this town. Professor, this is so interesting because the places where this energy is made, these power plants have provided an awful lot of jobs, and now you're going to have something there that won't be used for what it's been used for. It won't provide the economic benefit, and people feel in many cases, like in this town, that they've kind of been left behind. What what is your feeling, what's your thought about what we do with the communities where nuclear power plants have closed? Well, this is the other aspect that we uncovered earlier in the interview, is what is the impact of shutting down these plants, not only on the energy mix, and we talk about carbon emissions and so on, but a very real impact on the local communities that, that have relied for decades on these plants to provide, as you said, jobs and taxes and all of that. I'm not a politician. I can't really comment on, on uh, you know, what to do to help these communities. But uh, for sure, it's a big blow. I'm really glad to hear the representative from Vernon saying that, that they think they've, you know, they, they gotten over it and they have planned for ensuring that there is economic development in that region. The, the value of, of these plants is, is broad, and, and the economic value is certainly, certainly important. With uh, Seabrook Nuclear Plant in New Hampshire, Millstone Nuclear Power Station in Connecticut, sets to be the only nuclear uh, power stations in our entire region. What do we as ratepayers in this region do to subsidize them, to make sure that they're still running? Because if, as you said earlier, there is this pressure from natural gas, if there's this pressure from renewables and a desire to more, move more of our energy mix toward truly renewable sources of energy... What do you do to make sure these power plants continue to operate? Generally speaking, a uh, effectively a small subsidy, which in places like New Jersey, New York, and Illinois has been called a zero emission credit of between ten and fifteen dollars per megawatt hour, is sufficient to ensure that these plants are are profitable and they can continue to operate. This figure that I just gave you, say between ten and fifteen, ten and seventeen dollars per megawatt hour, is actually a small price to pay if compared to the um, rate hike that one would experience by shutting down nuclear power plants and replacing them with a mix for a fixed amount of carbon emissions. So that's, that's a fairly straightforward calculation. It shows that the extension of these nuclear plants is, is cost-effective. Professor, before I let you go, I want to talk about the future of nuclear power. It's something that you study very closely. And I think with all of the parts of our energy mix, there's always this question and this fear that the more that we invest in the technology of today or even of the last couple decades in order to make sure that we have safe, reliable power for some time to come, we may be not investing in a new type of technology that in five or ten years might provide safer, cleaner, more efficient energy. So I guess I'm wondering how you view that balance, where the the new technology in nuclear power is or could be in the next couple of years, and whether or not we might be thinking about that as opposed to retrofitting and investing in the existing infrastructure that we have right now. 
Yeah, you bring up a very important point. I, I'm a firm believer in the so-called all of the above strategy. In other words, I think we need a, a portfolio or a range of, of low-carbon technologies that will take us to the objective, which is to decarbonize the power sector. That portfolio should include reasonable retrofits to existing nuclear power plants, big investments in uh, solar, wind, and storage, and, as you correctly mentioned, also investment in, uh, in new nuclear technologies. The uh, plants that we operate in the U.S. are nominally old. There are certainly old designs, and the technology has not stopped evolving 30, 40 years ago when we built these plants. And so there are new uh, nuclear reactor, nuclear power plant technologies that we should definitely pay attention to, some of which, by the way, have been developed in the U.S. and have a very interesting, uh, for example, safety profile or potential for better economics, not to mention the possibility of generating other energy products, not just electricity, which remains the backbone of our uh, sort of strategy towards decarbonization. So I'm personally uh, not just interested, but I, you know, professionally, I would say, even excited about the prospects of, of new nuclear technology going forward. Jacopo Bongiorno is a professor and associate department head at MIT's Nuclear Science and Engineering Department. He's also director of the Center for Advanced Nuclear Energy Systems. He joined us today from Boston. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Coming up, we'll go to Martha's Vineyard for a discussion of race, racism, and policing. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. It's a story we've been talking about for a while here. Almost 95% of people in Maine and Vermont identify as white, according to the most recent census data. That number is about 94% in New Hampshire. The reasons why are complicated, and they prompt honest questions like this. Hi, my name is Claire Lynn Bevan, and I live in Camden, Maine. And my question is, why is Maine so white? So Maine Public Radio's Willis Ryder Arnold went looking for an explanation. Here's a story. The first part of the answer to the question, why is Maine so white, has to do with geography and economics. Maine's the northeasternmost tip of the United States, far away from the American center of the Atlantic slave trade. The South was um, primarily uh, a rural, uh, agricultural, agrarian economy, which depended heavily on uh, slavery, beginning in the 17th century, for both the production of tobacco and of cotton uh, on a large scale. Maine State historian Earl Shuttleworth says while there were instances of slavery in Maine, its economy wasn't built on plantation farming. Maine relied instead on forestry, shipbuilding, and textile and mill industries fueled by water power. After the Civil War, some black populations immigrated largely to urban centers such as New York, Chicago, and Detroit, attracted by the growing opportunities of new industry. Shettleworth says Maine's economy just wasn't robust enough to attract those new workers. Nowhere in these in these major patterns of both development and industry, which is what really fuels people's ability to, to live in a place and their, their work, do, do we find in, in Maine's history any large concentration of uh, people of color? 
makes sense so far, but this next fact complicates matters. Maine was actually much more racially diverse in the 19th century than it is today. That's Kate McMahon, a historian at the Smithsonian Museum of African American History in Washington D.C. She says a number of historic events influenced Maine's development as one of the whitest states in the U.S. First, the Civil War took a toll on Black communities already established in Maine. That's because during the war, shipbuilding transitioned from wooden construction to steel. This eliminated many of the jobs, including coopering, which had employed African Americans who had settled in the state. All of those industries began to suffer. Those were the the most high-paying jobs. Those were stable, and they were jobs that African Americans could get. And McMahon says some struggled to find work in Maine's textile, shoe, and rope factories. African Americans could not get employed in those jobs. They were excluded because of their race. So there were no African Americans working there. They had gave preference to white immigrants. In addition, Maine also enacted anti-miscegenation laws, ensuring white and black people couldn't marry. And then McMahon says. There's the story of Malaga Island, an interracial community off the coast of Phippsburg. And in 1912, the state of Maine had decided that they didn't want this colony of black people. They had all of the homes on the island were removed and razed. Later, McMahon says the Ku Klux Klan established itself in Maine and shaped the state's political climate, working to elect sympathetic government officials throughout the 1920s. By the 20s, you have all these economic circumstances that led to a lot of African Americans leaving the state of Maine, but also a lot of social、uh, circumstances that were not conducive for people of color wanting to move to the state of Maine to settle. And you know, you have this economic exclusion and social exclusion. But what does all that history have to do with why Maine is still so white? So these grand narratives. Are often things that limit us. Myron Beasley teaches American studies at Bates College and says that over time, many people came to just think of Maine as a very white state, and for Beasley, that causes lingering problems even in his own field of academia. I know a lot of the academic institutions.、Uh, you hear this phrase, "Oh, you know, Maine is so white. We can never attract people who are non-white because it's so white here." You know that's a fallacious statement, but in many ways, in their liberal understanding, this progressive liberalism, they are promoting the very thing that they they want to dismiss or they want to disrupt. Portland artist and educator Daniel Minter says that perception of Maine's whiteness can also obscure important historical realities, particularly about the state's earliest inhabitants. There are people of color here that have always been, you know, the Wabanaki here forever. How often do you hear of them being called Mainers? <laughs> you know, Minter, who came to Maine over a decade ago, sits next to the black and blue sketches of work that he says is about Malaga Island and the separation of interracial families at the hands of the state. He says African Americans, Latinos, Asians, and a growing number of African immigrants all call Maine home. Minter doesn't dispute the census numbers. But he says the very act of emphasizing Maine's whiteness creates its own air of exclusion. It's just that the the state has not needed to welcome us. You know, it hasn't needed to welcome people of color. So, to our listener Claire Helan Bevan, we hope this may have helped to answer your question: Why is Maine so white?
For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Willis Ryder Arnold. Another part of our region that's both a big tourist destination and also overwhelmingly white is the Massachusetts island of Martha's Vineyard. Fewer than 800 of the island's 17,000 residents are African-American. But the island does have a local chapter of the NAACP, which calls itself one of the most diverse racially and ethnically. Reporter James Sneed went there to talk to the chapter's president. I am. How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Uh, how are you doing? Chief Blake. Yes, how are you doing? Not too bad. That's Eric Blake, police chief of Oak Bluff. He's given me a tour of the town. He's also the president of the island's NAACP. What's unique here, like people aren't, no, there isn't cross burning, there isn't fights, there isn't, you know, police aren't, aren't manhandling people of color. And, you know, I, it's just, I'm like, okay, well, the first thing you need to do is look, you need to have an open discussion need not be afraid to have the, the discussion. Don't. I'm not guilty that I'm white. I, I've, I've, I've actually been privileged. A police chief, who's also the president of the NAACP, who also happens to be white. When I first learned about him, I have to admit I was shocked. To me, it seemed like a clear conflict of interest. According to their mission, one of the roles of the NAACP is to hold law enforcement accountable for their abuses. So for a police official to head a branch... It seemed like a case of foxes guarding hens. Sergeant, watch. Oh, we didn't know you were back already. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we are. He's doing a little little story on some uh, NAACP stuff. uh... After a tour of Oak Bluffs, Chief Blake and I headed to the station, where he's been the chief of police since 2003. He first became president of the local NAACP in 2013, and this past November, he won a fourth consecutive term Unopposed. Are people usually more surprised that you're the police chief and the NAACP president, or are they more surprised that you're white and the NAACP president? Which are people oh, more surprised oh, by? Oh, jeez. Uh, that I'm white. Yeah, that I'm white and the president. Absolutely. In the two-plus hours I interviewed Chief Blake, we talked about a lot, including the scandal surrounding Rachel Dolezal, former NAACP president, for the Spokane, Washington chapter. When I first came out, I, I think it was one of our MLK events. I'm like, just for the record, I'm white. I'm white. <laughs> we also talked about the American Origins of Policing, an essay by NAACP founder W.E.B. Du Bois. Yeah, they were, they were on patrol trying to bring back runaway slaves or keeping them in control. Um, you can't deny. Yeah. Don't, don't deny your history. Yeah. Be proud of who you are now, but don't deny your history. So. But in early 2015... Blake's two positions came into conflict. A few months previous, an unarmed black teenager was killed by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. The teenager was Michael Brown. The officer is Darren Wilson. The whole country seemed to be talking about it. So was Martha's Vineyard. That January, the island's local NAACP organized a protest, apparently billed as a Black Lives Matter march. But in a photograph in the Martha's Vineyard Gazette, there are two All Lives Matter signs in the foreground, with a Black Lives Matter banner trailing off in the background. In adjoining articles, Police Chief Blake is paraphrased saying that all signs were welcome and maintained that the different messages on the signs were not, quote, a conflicting statement. Yeah, we did... On January 1st, I think it was 2015, we, we had a march. 
Yeah. And um, and it came from members of the NAACP that said, and Lovi said, like, um, can we do other signs as well? Like, all lives matter. And then someone said, you know, hey, can I do one? Blue lives matter. And and to be fair to everybody, I don't think people really understood what Black Lives Matter was fully about. Yeah. Right? I think it was just a movement and it was really hot and, you know, making a lot of headlines. So I don't know. There was people even questioning whether we should be saying that because, you know, we don't know what it is. Is, is it is it a radical group? Is it just, a you know. What do you think the National Organization of Black Lives Matter would have thought of your march? Uh, I think they would have thought you needed um, more education about what we're doing. Kumbaya. That's the kumbayanas of us. That's Gretchen Tucker Underwood. She lives in Martha's Vineyard year-round. Um, I'll bet you if you looked in that, you'd see people carrying signs that said, Police Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Uh, we're very kumbaya. We're very, we are the world. Tucker Underwood serves on the executive board for the local NAACP. She's also black. I've introduced him a couple of times in... Um, presentations that I've been a part of and I'll say and here is the president of the NAACP and they said no that's Eric that's the and I said yeah that's what I'm trying to tell you all it's a very unique situation so I'm not surprised anymore but people said well how the heck did that happen well Tucker Underwood is part of why that happened she's on the board that nominates the chapter president I wouldn't put ask anybody to put any effort into trying to find a white police officer to be the president of their chapter. I wouldn't ask any chapter to do that. I would ask them to look among their membership and their leaders to see if there's somebody who is a strong advocate, who is a true advocate. If he happens to be the white police chief, then that's the way it would roll. But I wouldn't go the opposite way. Dr. Patricia Sullivan is a professor of history at the University of South Carolina. She literally wrote the book on the NAACP. Coincidentally, Dr. Sullivan has a summer home on Martha's Vineyard. Also, she's white. Are you familiar with Police Chief Eric Blake? Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's a conflict of interest? No. Mm-mm. I don't. I don't because I think that, A, he's, he's elected by the branch, and, and it's a terrific branch, very representative of... Um, you know, the Martha's Vineyard community. Sullivan says there may be a precedent for a cop leading the NAACP. It's hard to know. After all, there have been thousands of chapters since 1909. So, to her, what's happening on the vineyard isn't surprising. She wonders if it even matters. The, the success of chapters is less dependent on who is, you know, what... I uh, um, I agree a hundred percent, but can't do do not agree at all that this is just a little bit weird or out of the ordinary. <laughs> I see. I, I, I'm not saying that it's not a good thing or that it can't be great. Not. It's just it's just a little. Can you can you just say it's, it's a little weird? It's a little weird. <laughs> in, in the context of wh- how we see these things and what we know based on what gets reported and and how you know, it would seem that way. Well, I think it's an example that uh, I'm going to pay more attention to because I would really like to know what makes it work. That's Berkshire County NAACP President Dennis Powell, whose regional chapter includes the birthplace of W.E.B. Du Bois. If that chapter elected him as president, then they might be a lot further in their relationship, their race relationship, than other communities. You know, it's all, it, it all boils down to a person's beliefs and 
they're um, wanting to really work for the cause and understand the mission of the NAACP. I mean, that's that's the real core, and I think you can be black or white and still accomplish that. But not necessarily uh, a police chief. Exactly, because those are the two that I really find conflicting. Would it work in Berkshire County presently? I doubt it. But up there, maybe, you know, it can. I still had the questions that led me here, though. Is there a conflict between his positions of power? Or is the chief just exceptional? Sure. Yes, I am. <laughs> I am. I don't, I, you know, I got to be completely honest with you. There was, there, like this year, I was like, you know what? It's a lot. But I really don't, I don't, I, I'm trying to be as honest as possible. I, I don't believe that the, the two positions should, should conflict. But I, I, I don't think I'm exceptional. I, I think um, it's the only vehicle here to, to do social, you know, re- really right now. Um, so I, I wanted to be part of it. The NAACP has a history of working within the system. That's what gave rise to the more radical organizations like SNCC, the Black Panthers, and, in modern times, Black Lives Matter. That history might actually see the example of Martha's Vineyard as a natural evolution for the organization. And if Chief Blake got voted in by the chapter members, they must believe that he represents them. I can't say for sure that this would work elsewhere unless I saw it with my own eyes. I have no idea how it works. All I know is they say it works for them. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm James Sneed. That story comes to us from the Transom Story Workshop. Special thanks to Rob Rosenthal. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. And our executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Glenn Alexander. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.